Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. Dr. Walker is away, but this Sunday and next we will be considering the continuing study of the Gospel of Mark, and we're at chapter 15 on the cross of Christ. And this morning we looked at the at the this morning we will look at the first half of that, verses one through twenty, which describe more of the sufferings of Jesus Christ leading up to the actual crucifixion. In coming to this chapter, it is as if we are walking on hallowed ground. For here we have a picture for us of the awful reality of what Jesus, the sinless and holy Lamb of God, suffered that we might be saved. For most of us, it's a very familiar story, but I hope that we might see it today in a way that we would be moved to more deeply praise God for His mercy to us in Christ And if you are new to the claims of Christ or considering them and you're maybe reading the Bible for the first time, weighing the claims of Christ, I hope that you would be moved as you look at the sufferings of Christ and understand them to trust in Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. Hear the Word of God, Mark chapter 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, "'Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews?' For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, "'Hail, King of the Jews!' And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. 
Our Lord, as we consider this solemn passage, we pray that you would give us eyes to behold in greater depth the glories of Christ suffering and dying for us. Lord, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book titled The Splendid and the Vile, Eric Larson gives us a riveting account of the Battle of Britain, that air battle often called the Blitz between Nazi Germany trying to overpower Britain when Britain stood alone in Europe. The title comes from a quote by John Colville, one of Churchill's aides through the war, who after he had watched London being decimated by tons of German bombs one night, later recorded in his diary that the scene was splendid and yet vile. Splendid in that the explosions and lights in the sky at night over London were actually very beautiful, and yet they were also vile in that it was a reign of destruction and death perpetrated by an evil regime. That phrase reminds me of how we as Americans look at the, the Revolutionary War. We like to read the histories and remember the events such as Valley Forge, and as we think of them, we tend to contemplate them as glorious in that these events achieved our freedom as a nation. But we forget or gloss over to some degree that there was also so much terrible suffering. In that war, 1% of the population of our young nation died. That's a terrible statistic, and it surpasses even the statistic of, of percentage death in World War II. And yet, as we think back to that war, we are thankful for the service of those who served and sacrificed gave, and gave up so much. The splendid and the vile. This morning, I want us to look at our text and see two truths about the suffering of Christ, two truths that reveal great evil, great injustice, but also the truths of how God brought about redemption. Um, we might say, we might use that phrase, the splendid and the vile, brought together by God's sovereign purposes to save us from our sins. The first truth is this, majestic silence in the face of maximum injustice. Majestic silence on behalf of Jesus Christ in the face of maximum injustice. In verse 1, we pick up the account that we we have already looked at in chapter 14 of this nighttime council of the Jewish leaders. And this is really the end procedures of that council before the Sanhedrin. These leaders know that they are unable to put Jesus to death uh, according to Roman law by themselves. And so even though they have convicted him of blasphemy, they have to take him to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, if they won if they want a death sentence to be carried out against him. It's interesting, skeptics often uh, say that the stories in the Gospels are fabricated, that uh, they are 
myths that Jesus never died on the cross and certainly never rose again. It's all, it's all fairy tale, they would say. In the past, some historians even doubted the existence of Pontius Pilate, thinking that was part of the myth. Until 1961, when archaeologists uncovered a stone in Caesarea in Israel that, that declared Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has dedicated to the people of Caesarea a temple in honor of Tiberius. And so it was established that Pilate was and is a real person in history. And the cross in Christ happened in history as well, as well as the resurrection. But here are the religious leaders coming in the early morning dawn, knowing that they have to convince Pilate of Jesus being guilty of something worthy of death, of crucifixion by Roman law. Not an easy task, really. They couldn't bring a charge of blasphemy. That's what they had convicted him of, because Pilate wouldn't have cared about that. He would have said that would merely be a matter of their own religion. Let them resolve those things themselves. No, they had to come with charges of treason. And Luke's gospel, chapter 23, verse 2, itemizes the charges, the three charges that are spelled out against him there. One, misleading the nation, meaning really insurrection. Secondly, forbidding giving tribute to Caesar, meaning that Jesus had taught not to pay your taxes, which we know isn't true. And number three, saying that he himself is Christ, a king, in other words, high treason against Rome. Do you see the massive irony with these charges? Think about it. The one thing that Jesus steadfastly refused to become for the people and for the crowds when he preached and healed and taught, the one thing he refused to become was what they always wanted, a political leader, a political Messiah to throw off Rome. The very thing that he would never do is what these leaders said that he had done. It's ironic. Well, throughout this account, it's almost laughable. We see that Pilate doesn't believe a word of it. He knows that it's all a matter of envy and power, and he knows it's all for show as if these leaders are really so concerned about threats to Roman power. They're just wringing their hands. They're so loyal. No, he knows that what they really want is Jesus Christ crucified. And he might not understand exactly why, but he knows they want it very badly. Jesus before Pilate in this trial is such an interesting study. Mark gives us this abbreviated account here, and the other Gospels fill out a lot of the the story that is not here. But Mark gives us the crux of the matter in verse 2. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so, which is a somewhat um, qualified answer. Uh, Is Jesus guilty of treason? No, he knows he is not. But is he a king? Absolutely. He knows he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And his qualified answer to Pilate you have said so, indicates that Pilate doesn't understand in what way Jesus is king. In John's gospel, Jesus does further 
explain that to Pilate eventually, my kingdom is not of this world, and he goes on about that. But what truly amazed Pilate is that Jesus made no attempt to answer any of the charges that the religious leaders were bringing against him. Jesus' response was simply silence. That was never the tactic that a defendant in a Roman trial would take. The main way that a person got out of the charges was by saying something, by defending himself, even if he was guilty through and through, to try to come up with something to argue his way out of it. But Jesus remained completely silent as the accusations flew at him. And verse 5 states it in a profound way, but Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Here was someone apparently just giving up his life. We know what the outcome of this trial is. Jesus is going to be condemned as a criminal and crucified, yet Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent of any of these charges And Pilate really wanted to release Jesus, not out of any great sense of compassion or justice, but simply to spite these Jewish leaders. And if you put together all the ways that Pilate tried to end the trial, you end up with a scenario something like this. First, Pilate tries to tell these leaders to settle the matter themselves in their own courts, but they didn't have the power of death, so they definitely wouldn't accept that they pressed on. And so Pilate eventually declares that Jesus is not guilty, that he's innocent, which should have ended the trial, but the leaders won't hear of it. In fact, in the Gospels, there's really three separate times that Pilate declares that, but he's compelled to continue. And then third, when Pilate hears that Jesus is from Galilee, he sends Jesus to Herod, But Herod, after questioning him, and Jesus doesn't reply to him at all, and torturing him some, Herod sends him back again, saying that he's not guilty of anything, essentially. Uh, Then fourth, Pilate tries to release Jesus according to to the tradition of releasing a prisoner at Passover, which we read in our text. But we see the crowd, egged on by the chief priests and influenced by them, cries out, crucify him, give us Barabbas. And then we see in verse 15, just as one final way to possibly be able to release him, Pilate has Jesus flogged or scourged, as it says here, which is a brutal whipping, uh, 40 lashes, with the hopes that maybe seeing him so beaten and humbled that the crowd thirst for blood would be assuaged and that, they would re- that he would be able to release him, but all to no avail. And so finally, Pilate gives in out of political expediency and primarily out of wanting to make sure that his own political future is not endangered. He didn't want a bad report going back to Rome. And he orders that the Lord of glory, the sinless Lamb of God, be crucified. The greatest miscarriage of justice in all time, in all history. But we know that it had to be so according to God's eternal plan of salvation. Majestic silence in the face of maximum injustice. Before we go to our next point, let's just draw an application from this. Think about Pilate and his dilemma. Pilate 
was trying to do something that no one can actually do. He was trying to not reach a verdict about Jesus Christ. He was trying to push Jesus away and not have to deal with who he is and what Jesus claims about himself. He thought he could do that somehow, but he couldn't. He was trying to carve out some kind of middle way. But Jesus says, you are either for him or against him. There is no middle ground. And Pilate found that out the hard way. It's easy in life for a person to try to push out of his or her mind the claims that Jesus Christ makes. Maybe you haven't studied them in depth. Maybe you only know a little bit about it, but you know enough. And the truth is, each one of us must, must either fall before Jesus in trust and allegiance and adoration as our Lord, or we must reject Him, even if that rejection is out of maybe an apathy and a carelessness and kicking the can down the road, so to speak. I read recently that even among atheist writings now, there's a movement to talk about spirituality within atheism. It's somewhat interesting to think about that. Of course, it's a spirituality without God or without Christ, but there's a recognition that we need to promote and offer this aspect of our belief or non-belief, that we want to promote spirituality. I think that's interesting. Uh, Pilate could not escape the decisive verdict and eventually his sinful self-interest gave in to the mob. Is it possible that you are continuing to try to push Jesus away even when you have seen something of who he is? The truth is that Jesus remained silent so that he could accomplish salvation. Isaiah 53, 7 says, um, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And 1 Peter 2.22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Then Peter goes on to talk about how he bore our sins. What a mercy that Jesus endured such vile injustice for the splendor of our eternal salvation, isn't it? Well, the second truth is this. Jesus was delivered up by sinful men to death, yet at the same time delivered up by God for our eternal good. Jesus was delivered up by evil men, but ultimately delivered up by God. In verse 2, we read this phrase that the whole council delivered him over to Pilate. Remember, the council was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees both, and they really never agreed about anything. But here, the whole council agrees together, and that phrase is used. They bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. In verse 15, then, we read that Pilate delivered him to be crucified. So, the council delivers him to Pilate. Pilate delivers him to be crucified. The crowd was involved. They cried, crucify him. The soldiers were involved. They flogged him and tortured him in various ways. And we also have studied that Jesus, that Judas had betrayed him. 
that uh, moved by Satan. Judas did that. Peter had denied him three times. The disciples had all abandoned him. On and on it goes. In a sense, we know that all of us bear responsibility because our sins required the death of Jesus Christ. We delivered him up. Many Bible passages, though, speak of the deeper purpose of God. Two in particular I'll share with you from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter is preaching to the crowds on the day of Pentecost, and at one point he says, this Jesus, now hear this, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Same phrase, delivered up. But here, it's according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Both are true. That's the same phrase, delivered up by sinful human beings. And really, as we know well, even Satan was behind that. But on an even deeper level, all of this happening to fulfill the saving purposes of God. And so Isaiah 53.10 can state, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. What a phrase. It was the will of the Lord. It was the purpose of God. Or listen to Acts 4.26. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. A quote of Psalm 2. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, those are some of the kings of the world, right? Along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Interesting, isn't it? Again, that juxtaposition. All these groups allied together against the Lord's anointed to do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. The good and merciful saving person purposes of God, working in and through and under all the evil purposes of men. And look how this is so strikingly illustrated in the account of Barabbas. Here's Barabbas, a true insurrectionist, an actual murderer, probably a leader among the zealot political party who had promoted rebellion against Rome. But Pilate knows that there's a tradition at Passover, that a prisoner be released. So he sees this, this tradition as a possible exit ramp for him to release Jesus. But we know that the mob gets worked up into this frenzy, screaming that Barabbas is the one who should be released and Jesus should be crucified. It reminds me, if you've ever watched a YouTube video, of some kind of um, speaker at a university who does not tow the line that the university might tow, being shouted down by almost a mob, you know, and the speaker can't speak at all. Uh, there's no arguing with uh, something that's like a mob. And Pilate finally gives in. That's all he can do. And as a result, there's this, there's this exchange. And it's very possible that that middle cross on Golgotha was already the cross that was reserved and set up for Barabbas. We don't know that for sure, but it's possible but Jesus, the sinless one, takes the place of this murderer. What a picture of the great exchange that's at the heart of the gospel. 
that we are all by nature and by actual practice of our lives and our sins condemned before the righteous justice of God. We have sinned in thought and word and deed. But Jesus, by His life and death, takes our place. And if we are found in Him by God's grace through faith, then we can say with the hymn we just sang, no condemnation now I dread, Jesus and all in Him is mine. What an exchange that God looks on us and sees the righteousness of His Son and His Son's death in our place. Some of you know that my father fought through Europe in the infantry in World War II. And finally, just a few weeks before the end of the war in Europe, he was seriously injured. And after recovering for nine months and and he felt well enough, he felt this great burden to visit two of the families who were closest to him among the many fellow soldiers who had died. He actually was the 36th casualty of his 12-person squad and uh, half of them were lost the first night. He lasted for months and months. So he had seen 36 of them go. And in the winter of uh, 45, he takes a train to Buffalo, New York, and then on to Connecticut to visit the two families, one very poor, one very wealthy. And he has the privilege of talking with the parent and the families of their son's service and courage and the details of the death. And he came away from that experience with a deep sense of gratitude uh, and purpose and feeling that his life had been spared. Yes, he had lost a leg, but he was still alive. And that changed the way he viewed his life. And I think a lot of the GIs returning from that war felt that way. You might call it a sort of a philosophy of exchange. I think that's a dim illustration of Christ's great exchange. His sacrifice in our place for our sins, His resurrection securing our resurrection. But it's because of God's purposes in these terrible events in Mark 15 that we can look at the deep injustice done to Christ and say, how beautiful how glorious, hallelujah, what a Savior, in Christ is all my hope and trust. How do you usually feel when you read on the front page about some injustice? Doesn't it make you angry? We don't feel angry. We feel thankful. If you are in Jesus Christ, you sing, and can it be with all your heart, even if you can't carry a note? And I ask you, how can we apply that? Well, Have you entered into that great exchange through Christ by placing your faith in Jesus Christ? And for those of you who are in Christ, do you regularly seek to contemplate the love of Christ for you? This is so important because seeing the love of Christ as it is revealed in Scripture and and standing in the love of Christ by faith in what He has done and actually glorying in the cross of Christ are at the very heart of of our present transformation into the image of Christ. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? Glorying in the cross in our daily lives, standing anew in Christ every day, is part of how God transforms us into the image of Christ in our daily lives. As we read this 
chapter, and the same is true for all the gospel accounts. It's interesting. Have you ever stopped to think about how restrained the gospel writers are about not verging into the gory and bloody details of all of this? Maybe you've seen movies that weren't restrained and that verged into it big time. But when it comes to the crucifixion itself, all they say is, and they crucified him. Why is this? It's because in addition to presenting historical facts, they are also communicating very important spiritual and theological truths. The injustice and the physical suffering are there, yes, and it's awful, but the deeper suffering of Christ is in bearing the weight of sin. And the great and central truth is the great love of God in Jesus Christ, Jesus willingly suffering for sinful human beings, the Father willingly delivering up His Son unto death and crushing Him, all the while the Son pleasing Him, but turning away His face on the cross. The sin-bearing Lamb of God carrying in His soul the terrible penalty that we deserved. And it's splendid. It's a truth beyond comprehension. God Himself dying for sinners. No one in the ancient world would have ever dreamed up such a thing. No human would have ever imagined such a way that God would act. Do you regularly seek to meditate on the cross of Jesus Christ? It never gets old. It shouldn't get old. It's there throughout the Old Testament and all the Old Testament foreshadowing types and ceremonies and in Bible stories and in prophecies. It's throughout the Gospels and Jesus coming to earth in His incarnation, in His life of sacrifice and service and compassion and miracles. It's there through the epistles as the epistles explain for us the meaning of the cross. But the central theme of it all is the redeeming love of Jesus Christ all the way to the cross. He didn't turn back all for you and for me. So we are always being reminded of the great redemptive love of Jesus Christ. And so Paul can write, He that did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? We know we're called to behold the glory of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 3, with unveiled faces and so to be more and more transformed into the likeness of Christ. We know that 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Are you dwelling on the love of Christ? During the Revolutionary War, George Washington spent eight years away from his beloved home, Mount Vernon, eight years of fighting with the army, leading the army without enough men and supplies, eight years of the administrative headaches he faced every day with relating to Congress and trying to get clothing and ammunition and all of these things, the constant fears, the constant concerns, the ever-present threats and death and destruction. But historians note that often in the midst of all the burdens, and usually late at night, George Washington would write to his wife Martha, 
or to his brother-in-law who was managing his estate with some detail about something he wanted done with uh, some kind of repair that was being done. And in other words, at those times, his heart would go to what he loved the most. For us as Christians, our hearts should go most to the cross of Jesus Christ, which is at the heart of the gospel, the love of Jesus Christ. It's the pinnacle of the revelation of that love of Christ. The cross, which as we read Mark 15, is so vile because of human sin, but because of God's wonderful purpose of salvation, it's become for every believer so splendid. May the cross be beautiful for you. May you glory in that cross daily and so be enabled more and more to praise God whatever comes in your life, to know that His purposes are standing for you as well, and to live unto Christ our Lord and to die to sinful self. Amen. Father, thank You for the glory of the cross. Lord, we say that we count everything, count all gain but loss. We don't boast in anything but the cross. But even as we sing and speak those words, Lord, we know that they're not completely true. We put other things before you. Uh, Our worship is half-hearted at times. We forget you. Lord, move us again by the cross of Jesus our Lord. And if anyone does not know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we pray that you would open his or her heart to you even this very hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.